Welcome to our podcast, Bad, it's all about crime, brought to you by Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival and the City of Sydney. I'm Suzanne Leal. And I'm Andy Muir, and each month we'll be exploring the big questions in crime and crime writing. Subscribe to our podcast, then jump onto the Bad All About Crime book club page on Facebook to be part of the conversation. And thanks for listening. Welcome to the Bad All About Crime podcast. I'm Andy Muir. The episode you're about to hear is a presentation from the 2021 Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. The Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival is on again from the 8th to the 10th of September in Sydney. Go to www.badsydney.com to find out more. Hello and welcome to the very last day of the 2021 Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. For those who don't know me, my name's Suzanne Leal. I'm the author of three novels, most recently, The Deceptions and The Teacher's Secret. I'm so very delighted to be here in conversation today with Mark Brandy and Lynn Yowett in our session Through the Eyes of a Child. We are, of course, as you know, on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past and present. Now, to our guests. Lynn Yowett is a professional writer and editor. Her acclaimed debut novel, The Sight of Listener, was long listed for the ARA Historical Novel Prize and is loosely based on events from her childhood growing up in rural Victoria. She's now working on her second novel. Lynn is joining us from Melbourne, but in person here on stage. Really lovely to have you up here. Welcome to you, Lynn. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you, everybody, for attending and people on Zoom too. Mark Brandy worked in the justice system, which is of interest to me. I've, I've worked as a criminal lawyer, uh, but then left the system to become a full-time writer. His best-selling first novel, Wimmera, won the British Crime Writers Association debut Dagger and was best debut at the Australian Indie Book Awards. It was shortlisted for the Australian Book Industry Literary Fiction Book of the Year and the Matt Rochelle Award for New Writer of the Year. Mark's second novel, The Rip, was published to critical acclaim in 2019. The Others is his latest book. Welcome to you. Thanks, Suzanne. So today we're going to be focusing on Lynn's book, The Silent Listener, and Mark's book, The Others. In both books, much of the narrative is told through the eyes of a child. For Lynn, it's through 11-year-old Joy. For Mark, it's through the eyes of a nine-year-old boy called Jacob. Eleven. Sorry to correct you. He's 11. (laughs) (laughs) Jacob has grown up two years before my eyes. (laughs) So we have something in common between Joy and Jacob in that they are both our 11-year-old protagonists. Thank you. Lynn, tell me a little bit about Joy and her family to set the scene for those who haven't read The Silent Listener. Okay. So uh, as Suzanne said, Joy is 11 um, and she lives in a on a farm. A lot of similarities to um, Jacob in some respects. Um, she lives on a farm that's quite remote in a fictional town somewhere in Victoria, and it, it's a fairly grim setting because it's uh, there's a lot of rain and a lot of mud. And there are also a lot of lies and secrets. So pretty much every member of her family and some of the neighbours have secrets and lies. And there are, um, and, and Joy slowly becomes aware of some of those secrets and lies. And as a child, she feels suffocated and somewhat stifled by the, the family dynamics. She has a brother, she has a sister who has some difficulties and problems 
and she has a father who's um, essentially a religious zealot and potentially has some mental health issues and he's quite um, abusive to his children and to his wife. Um, so there are a lot of uh, um, lot, a lot of troubles going on within the family, and we see them through Joy's eleven-year-old eyes. And then, actually, um, intertwined with those chapters are chapters that we um, we encounter Joy, who comes back to the farm as an adult to nurse her father while he's dying. So there, we see sort of two perspectives of Joy's. Um, experiences on the farm and her reflections and understanding of what's going on with her father, her mother, her siblings and herself and the neighbours. Interesting. Thank you, um, Lynn. That Lynn talks about Joy, who is mostly a child but also an adult in The Silent Listener. Now, of course, that's the situation with Jacob as well. We see the narrative always first person, predominantly through Jacob in his 11-year-old eyes, but also as an adult. So tell me a little bit about Jacob as the child. Yeah, so The Others is the story of a young boy named Jacob and his father who are living a very, very isolated existence out in the middle of the wilderness and for his 11th birthday. Uh, the father gives Jacob a, a diary um, ostensibly to help with his reading and writing. And that's the form in which the story is told. And so through these diary entries, we see his observations about the farm, life with the animals, the natural world. But we also see that his father becomes increasingly protective over him and warns of dangers outside their land. But inevitably, Jacob's curiosity gets the better of him. And he then ventures outside the property and, and makes what is really a terrifying discovery, which um, makes him question everything that he's been told. He's a pretty attractive kid in terms of a narrator, isn't he? He seems to be pretty, despite his situation, looking for the best and making the best of his situation. Was that uh, something that you found about him as well? Yeah, like, it's a funny, like, my, my book's for those who have read uh, the, the Rip and Wimra, I tend to veer into the darker um, aspects of humanity. So, you, you know, you're not in for an easy ride, I think, when you pick up my books. But, you know, life on, on the farm for Jacob and his father is really, really tough. And there is a lot of, a lot of darkness there. But one of the things that really attracted me to his story and to that voice of the child is the kind of beauty and innocence that a child will still see in the world and will search for. And I guess that was really part of the, the, the drive for writing the book was this question around nature versus nurture and to what extent our early childhood experiences shape us then as adults. And so Jacob's faced with this you know, really difficult situation, but the question is whether or not he will rise above that and whether or not in, then in his adult life he'll get past that experience. And when I reflect on my first two books as well, The, the Rip and Wimra, I think they, they dealt with issues of, of past trauma as well. And I think a lot of, lot of crime writing really does, a lot of fiction does for that, for that matter, explore trauma and its, its permutations. So he just, it was a really compelling voice for me and it 
I, I love writing that child's viewpoint. It it was tough as well. Um, like I, I would say that writing this book was a much more difficult experience than than my first two books. So um, whether or not I'll venture into that viewpoint again, I don't know. Why do you think looking back it was so difficult? What was particularly difficult to get the voice right? It, it wasn't so much the voice. So it, it was probably... Because when I started writing it, I didn't know it was going to be a novel at that point. It began as a short story back in 2016, and that was published in Mianjin. And that that story was based on some real-life experiences from, from my childhood. Because if I give a little bit of context, I'll just tell the backstory. Um, we were growing up in Western Victoria, and we had a farm on the outskirts of town, and we had sheep on that farm. And we had issues with vermin like foxes and rabbits, et cetera. And we used to go hunting on the farm, which I had real misgivings about as a kid. Like I I loved animals, but I I kind of understood why we had to do it. And um, my dad used to set those kind of steel-jawed traps on the farm. People might remember those. They're pretty horrific things. Um, And on one occasion, he came back from the farm and he said, Mark, Mark, come out to the car. And he had the Kingswood parked out front and we went out there and there's a little like bundle on the back seat. And he reached in there and took out this young fox. It was like a baby fox, which he'd caught in the trap. And he he took it inside. And I was thinking, what the hell's going on here? You know, this is an animal we've tried to kill and he's taken it home and tending to its leg and looking after it. And I won't give away the, the rest of that story because it's kind of important to the to the novel, but it was probably one of my first insights into the kind of complexities and, and contradictions of my father and, and also of adulthood as well. And I suppose I, I, there was a bit of an intrigue about that voice that I wanted to return to, and I, I knew there was more I wanted to tell about that story, obviously a fictionalised story, being Jacob and his father, but I just felt drawn to it. It's one of those weird things when you're writing novels, you can't intellectualise it, you just feel attracted to a, to a voice, at least that's how it works for me. Like, I, I don't have a plan, I don't sort of think, oh, this is the kind of story I want to tell, I want to impart this bit of wisdom to the reader or anything like that. It's, it's all about voice for me. So, I... I feel very um, close to Jacob and, and, and care for him, and I, I hope that readers do too. Mark's just said, I don't want to impart wisdom to the reader. Uh, what did you want to do when you were writing The Silent Listener? Um, I think I did. <laughs> <laughs> Wisdom's um, good. <laughs> but then I kind of had to back off. So um, I started writing The Silent Listener as tiny little vignettes, and so... A little bit like Mark, I grew up on a farm the other end of um, Victoria and it was fairly remote. And so there are a lot, there are very, a lot of parallels. We also had rabbit traps and foxes and, um, the da- you know, the dam and rubbish tanks and things like that, um, a lot of which feature in the novel. And um, the family dynamics that are in the novel are pretty much uh, the family dynamics that I grew up with and there is some uh, trauma and some violence in the novel which I grew up with and um, so I had in my mind that I was going to write this 
very highbrow literary novel that explored the long-term ramifications of abuse and violence when it's um, perpetrated on children. What happens to those people when they grow up? Because we tend to focus on what's happening to children and why and how and all of that kind of thing. But um, a, a lot like other sort of childhood diseases and conditions sometimes too. We focus on what it's like as a child, but we don't talk about what what happens to that child when they grow up, when they're an adult. So I wanted to explore and tell people about the long-term ramifications of experiencing trauma and violence. But that, if I did that, that was going to be a pretty grim, <laughs> totally grim book. And at one point I... Um, real, well, I was initially only writing li these little vignettes and then at some point when I thought, okay, I, I think I have a novel in here but I have to make it a novel with a trajectory that people will want to read about. So I introduced a lot of fictional elements like a little girl who goes missing while Joy is a child from a neighbouring farm and, um, and some other elements that kind of um, perhaps... Uh, deepened some of the secrets, uh, made them perhaps a little bit darker, a little bit deeper. And so I did change. At one point I was writing kind of memoir for me and then I realised what I'm really writing is a novel for readers. So um, I think I backed off a little bit <laughs> on the proselytising and decided I have to make this a compelling read for people and hopefully yeah, a little bit of that message might filter through. Um, and it seems from uh, messages and personal contact I've had with a, a lot of readers, which has just been absolutely mind-blowing and fantastic, a lot of people have resonated with the story. I've had a lot of people, in fact, an incredible number of people come up to me and say, I felt like you were there in my own childhood um, some of these people have been friends of mine. I had no idea that they had similar childhoods. Um, one woman said, I felt like you were a fly on the wall and I kept on saying, how does she know that this went on in my home? How does she know about this? And um, so I, um, I'm really pleased that that has happened. One friend of mine, her book club did this book, which was wonderful, and she contacted me the day after they had um, discussed it and she said, we went for, we talked for about four and a half hours about your book. And she said, one of the old women there said to me, said to the group, this is what happened to me when I was a child. She said, I have never told anybody about it, not my husband, not my children, no one. And she said, this book has brought me closure, peace and closure. And she said, and for me, as an author, I just thought, right, my job is done. <laughs> One person's life has changed because of my book for the better. Um, so that was just very moving and in incredibly gratifying. Mark, Lynn's just said that she had to learn how or had to change the book from being a memoir to a novel for readers. Who do you write for? Mm. Yeah, I, look, I, I do write for myself principally. Um, I when, when I write and when it's in flow and things are going well, there's nothing else like it, you know. Um, time disappears. I there's nothing else. I think that I need to be doing or want to be doing when I'm in that space when I'm writing, 
and there's nothing else in my life which is like that. And so to be able to, to do that for a living and to go into these imaginary worlds and, and hopefully paint a compelling picture for readers is, is magical, but... I think that the reader, the reader's there for sure. Like I, I, it's in the back of my mind, but first and foremost, it's it's for me. And with the others, you know, being that child's viewpoint and being for an adult readership was a, was a really tricky thing to write because, you know, you've got an 11-year-old kid who's lived this incredibly sheltered existence. So it isn't even your typical 11-year-old kid. He's been homeschooled and he's known no one except his father and very dim memories of his mother. And so one of the challenges in writing it was how do I, like, make this compelling um, and, and give it depth for an adult readership? And so one of the ways that... <laughs> sort of flowed in doing that was the use of, of illustrations in the in the text and also the use of uh, dictionary definitions and encyclopedia definitions so Jacob only has a couple of couple of books really dictionary and a set of encyclopedias an in, incomplete series of encyclopedias in his house so he he's trying to grapple with the world and really understand his father better but understand the outside world and the way that he tries to do that is through using illustrations and also using definitions from time to time and that turned out to be a way that i could kind of impart some of the the subtext of of the story so Jacob is sensing that something isn't quite right in what his father's telling him he can't he lacks the sophistication to be able to articulate it, but he knows that something is amiss and that's expressed in a few key places through his illustrations. So that was a, a very important tool, but it's always the challenge of writing the, the child's viewpoint is, you know, you, you don't want the kid to be suddenly become so um, articulate or precocious that they're, you know, they're almost being a puppet for you and telling the reader something. And that's one of the perils of, of, of writing that viewpoint. I mean, I, the way I see um, the others in particular, one of the key challenges for me was to have myself as the author recede into the background and have this kind of experience of the reader picking up the book and almost being, you know, believing that it was a diary that they were reading from this child and entering that world and finding it believable because the books that I love, I, that I'm immersed in, I don't think about the author. I don't think, it, you know, it's the fact that um, Cormac McCarthy wrote it or Sophie Laguna wrote it or whoever. I, I'm in there inside that world. It's almost like trying to... Um, cast a spell, I suppose, on the reader. I mean, we all know it's, it's, it's not real, it's a, it's a book, but um, when it's working, I think you, you can um, really make that believable for the reader and, you know, ha- have the book almost presented, in the case of the others, as this artefact of a particular point in time. So I'm not sure if I succeeded in that, but um, perhaps the readers will know best. 
And what I noticed too, going back to your use of the dictionary and the encyclopedia, I was thinking about you writing that and I was thinking, well, it's pretty tricky for a, have an 11-year-old kid who's in total isolation, who knows no one, who has education by a father who may not be terrific. Um, how does he learn things? And, of course, having a dictionary and an encyclopedia explains how a child in isolation would have knowledge that's not firsthand. Yeah, yeah. and I, I think in a lot of ways, in hindsight, that was a reflection of my father's upbringing. So, so my dad, he, he grew up in the, the kind of shadows of the Second World War in Italy. He lived in this remote um, property. He was the second eldest of seven children, this old stone house in the middle of nowhere in the hills of La Marche in Italy. No running water, no electricity, nothing like that. Um, his, his father was uh, a violent, alcoholic, womanizer, just a, a not a good man by all accounts. And dad was largely left to his own devices growing up and, and kind of had to, you know, teach himself a lot of things. Ultimately, he um, he, man he was sent away to a um, to study to be a priest. So that was where he got a, a formal education at one point. But when he was at home, he was just finding his own way in the world. So it's more in hindsight. But when I look back on it, I think that some of those stories that my dad told me from time to time um, really inspired the story of Jacob. I must say, I, I love the stories of the people who started out to become religious and particularly the ones who are celibate religious people. And the question is always, well, what happened? I mean, hello. Oh, what happened? <laughs> yeah. No, he, he, he wasn't like in, at that time in Italy, which was very um, uh, economically depressed uh, after the Second World War. It was a hard for a lot of families to to get their kids into school. So going to study, um, like one of my uncles, he went to a um, monastery as well. So, and yeah, my father studied to be a priest. He wasn't especially religious. He grew up in a religious household, um, but he ultimately, he completely renounced the faith. Like he just thought it was utterly hypocritical. I hope there's no Catholics and well, they probably are Catholic. I'm a Catholic. It's okay. Um, but uh, yeah, so he, he, he just not, just wasn't, wasn't into it at all, but still, yeah, it had the benefit of that that education. So I, I think that 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 worked for him in, in one sense. But no, he was never going to enter the priesthood. <laughs> I'm fascinated by religion. Fascinated by religion in books and in fiction. And in fact, in in my novel, The Deceptions, one of the voices is a female minister, and the difficulties of having such a vocation, being on your own as a woman. Now for for you, Lynn, uh, there's a large focus on religion, but it really comes from the child's perspective and it's, uh, it's an austere, difficult religion. Can you tell me about the religion in the novel and also what you grew up with? Uh, they're pretty much one and the same. <laughs> so um, my father was a religious zealot. He was an elder in our local Presbyterian church and he was totally uh, convinced that his children were to go to heaven and the way that he made sure that we did or that we would was by constantly reminding us that we were sinners and that we would probably go to hell. And, in fact, he said, and I, the father in the novel also says this, 
Our father told us that he would be the only unhappy person in heaven because his children would be in hell. And I tell you, that is a pretty hard thing to live with as a child and to feel that you are just never going to be good enough. And um, so, um, yeah, it was really fairly confronting a kind of thing to live with. And we had a wall hanging, which features in the novel, hanging over our kitchen table. It's a fairly common um, poem is completely the wrong word, but it's sort of, I guess, it's kind of like a poem. It's quite common in um, Christian households. And it said, uh, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, uh, the silent listener to every conversation. And I think it was supposed to be reassuring, but I tell you what, <laughs> it's the original big brother. <laughs> and it was just awful thinking that that was the case, that you could never, ever have a conversation or do anything that Christ did not see and hear and and enjoys uh, mind report back to her father and uh, so she has a, a, a really wild imagination in one scene she actually kind of because because of this wall hanging she imagines Christ kind of hovering over the kitchen table and um, she she worries about the blood that is maybe going to come out of his hands and feet because of um, they were nailed to the cross and, and she's just constantly in fear that her father is going to, uh, sorry, that Christ is going to tell her father about her sins. Um, so, uh, and she has these, yeah, um, kind of very vivid sort of daydreams about um, things like going to hell, being caught up in the sort of torrent of Catholics, Jews, heathens, Black people, Chinese people, anybody who wasn't a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, basically, and preferably the peace stood for Presbyterian, <laughs> um, all of those people were going to hell and she was sure she was going to be one of them as well. She, um, she imagines these scenes of people being kind of pushed into hell by demons and um, uh, a waiting line for people in purgatory. She hears about that Catholics believe in purgatory and she sort of imagines it's a bit like a waiting room in a railway station and everyone's just depressed, <laughs> trapped and hoping that people will pray for them so they can go to heaven. So I don't know whether Catholics actually believe that, but that's what my father told me, that if um, Catholics believed in purgatory and that everybody else had to pray long and hard for them to, and if they didn't, they wouldn't go, get to heaven. I've never actually verified that. No, that's Catholics. true. All oh, right, great, thank you. <laughs> so yeah, it was a weird. I have to say, it was a really weird thing. Everything that we did was coloured by my dad's religious fervour, and, and in a very mainstream church too. So it wasn't like we were, you know, kind of in some weird cult or anything like that. We're very mainstream, but. Um, behind our closed doors, very weird too. One um, silver lining for me is that I was baptised into the Presbyterian Church, so uh, looks like I'm one of the lucky ones. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You're, you'll be in heaven for so, sure, Suzanne. I hadn't realised it was <laughs> Unless a, you're a child of my father's. <laughs> a very small place to be, it would appear. Uh, Mark, you speak of a plague in the others. Uh, is this a plague that you thought of in 2019, or is this something that came to you later? What I'm saying is that is 
does COVID loom in the writing or is that a coincidence? Coincidence. I, I kind of, I, I don't believe in books being prescient particularly. I, I just think that was a kind of, well, unlucky uh, bit of timing, I think, in many respects. I I probably draw a stronger connection to, um, and Lynn and I were talking about this before, uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, which um, is one of my favourite books. And I think, you know, when I was first out doing a bit of publicity um, for the others, I, I never wanted to mention The Road because I just felt like a wanker if I was, like, comparing <laughs> myself to Cormac McCarthy because I'm not. Let me make that clear. Um, but it was, it was certainly an influence in, in the writing of the book because there is that father-son dynamic there. Uh, in that case, it isn't so much a plague but a... a post-apocalyptic scenario, which is never never quite specified. Uh, but the, I guess the dynamic between the father and the son in um, the road is, is quite different in that the father is very caring and, and loving uh, of his son in, in the, the most harrowing of circumstances imaginable. And I, I guess I wanted to subvert that in a way, um, without giving away any spoilers, um, which I probably just have, um, in, in the others, uh, it's, a, it's a different kind of relationship between the father and the son. It's a, it's a more complex relationship, I think, in, in some respects. But it was a weird thing when COVID hit because I was in the midst of uh, edits at that stage. So it it was it was bizarre because you're kind of seeing things play out that you've you've written about in in one respect um and i guess what it 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 did it didn't alter my my editing of it but it it i i probably um deepened i suppose my um understanding that this kind of thing could happen more or less like that you know i, I where i grew up there was there was people who uh, lived outside of town who were, were pretty much off the grid. And I don't mean off the grid and, uh, um, you know, not connected to utilities, but just socially and culturally, they had nothing to do with anyone else. They, um, they, they homeschooled, they were just cut off from the world. And, and that, that's, that's real. I mean, that, that happens. And I think what we've seen play out during the pandemic is the way in which, particularly people who are socially isolated, how certain beliefs can can take hold. Um, I think with the pandemic, you know, the, the impact of social media and the way that people are connecting to news um, has altered the landscape significantly, and that isn't the case in, in my book. Um, but, yeah, the short answer is it, it, it influenced, I guess, the, the editing of my, my work but not the writing of it. It's always an interesting question for, for writers now that we've lived in this pandemic era for the next books. Uh, is your next book set in 2019 or <laughs> earlier? Uh, is it set during a pandemic or is it in a world that is uh, a, a, a fantasy world where there is no plague or none? Yeah, I, I, I don't I always like avoid talking about my next book in case I, I jinx it but I, I can it's it's funny because it's always in a way easier I think for kind of crime crimeish writers to write in the past before the advent of mobile phones and, and kind or of D, technology, DNA DNA all that sort of stuff so um 
yeah, no, in my 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 next book isn't um, post pandemic, so I don't have to deal with that that aspect. Fortunately, how about you, Lynn? No, my post, uh, my post, my next book is not post pandemic either. So <laughs> definitely, I'm I'm quite conscious of not wanting to yet have to deal with it quite yet. I think also because we haven't. It's not as if it's over. We talk about post COVID era. We're not in a post-COVID era yet. So I'm kind of interested to see if, well, if we ever reach that while I'm still alive. Um, and and I, I know this is getting off the topic, but thinking about um, seeing things through the eyes of a child, I've been wondering about very young children who haven't, who, who have no memory of a pre-COVID era, sort of for four and five-year-olds maybe, and just sort of where they're at and, you know, is it, bizarre for them to think that people used to wander around without masks and without daily statistics coming out about how many people are ill and how many people have died. I think that's quite a a weird thing, weird environment for children to grow up in, certainly one that none of us have experienced. So I think that's going to be maybe talking about books um, in the future that are set now through the eyes of a child will be very interesting, I think. Lynn, I'd really like to hear from the silent listener and I'm hoping you'll do a reading for us. For those in the audience that haven't read the book, uh, it's um, it's a terrifically arch book and I love the narrative which sort of, which always hovers between um, a great uh, shock and a dry, wry humour. So um, that's done very well. So congratulations to you, Lynn, and um, over to you. Okay, thanks, Suzanne. That's lovely words. Uh, so this is fairly early on in the book and it's um, a section written through uh, from Joy's perspective. Um, I'll just say this is in third person and I originally started writing it in first person but it was just I, I kind of I needed to distance myself from um, Joy the child. Uh, um, okay. She tried so hard to be good so she wouldn't end up like Mark. Their father often had to punish him for all the terrible things he did. On holidays and weekends and after school, Mark had to help their father get the cows up to the dairy, bang in fence posts, mend barbed wire, wash cow muck out of the dairy, fix the windmills, scrub out the troughs, clean and sharpen tools, wash the tractor in the van, carry bales of hay to the cows, load the full milk cans onto the trolley and push it out to the road where the tanker collected the cans and returned the empty ones. And these were just the jobs Joy knew of. She thanked God every day that she only had to cook and clean under her mother's supervision and pick flowers, being careful not to bruise them, of course. Colin from the farm next door helped their father too. Everyone liked Colin, even her father. Colin wasn't very good at reading or writing, but he could do anything and everything on a farm. Once, Joy had seen him accidentally tip over a full can of milk right in front of her father and the eels in her stomach had reared up because her father's anger was like knives. She watched him lift his arm to smash Colin's face, but instead it landed gently on Colin's shoulder and her father said, never mind, Colin, grab the hose and we'll clean it up. No good crying over spilt milk, hey. And as they hosed and swept it away, her father patted him on the shoulder and said, good job, Colin, that's the way. I don't know what I'd do without you. And Colin had, as was his way, repeated the words, good job, Colin. 
Her father never punished Ruth either. But of course, she never did anything wrong. Never had, never would. Oh no, their father was never angry with Ruth, all because of the accident. Once on her 10th birthday, Joy had heard her father praying in his bedroom, asking God to take special care of Ruth. The familiar white jealousy had tingled at the back of Joy's neck. Even when it was her birthday, her father wasn't praying for her, was he? Now peeling the potatoes, she pushed her red barbed wire annoyance with Ruth down into her stomach where the eels were and tried to imagine how different things would be if there had been no terrible accident. Poor Ruth, she told herself for the millionth time, trapped in her chair because of the terrible accident. Poor Ruth, trapped in the house, never able to go to school or work or even church because of the terrible accident. Whenever Joy went into their room, whether she'd finished her chores or had just got home from school or church, there was Ruth sitting in her chair, always smiling, always eager to know what Joy had been doing, even if she'd just gone to collect the eggs, always offering her opinion. And even though Joy was sorry for her big sister, she often wished that once, just once, she could walk into the bedroom and not see Ruth's smiling face or have to answer her questions or listen to her advice. Thanks, Lynn. There are three time periods in your book, 1940s, 1960s, 1980s. Joy is a child of the 60s and that's when she grows up. Why did you choose three periods? Mm -hmm. <laughs> because I wanted to write a really difficult novel. <laughs> I don't know. I, I wish later that I hadn't. It's really tricky trying to control and manage three time periods. But um, initially I started off just writing the 60s, just joy growing up in that um, household. And um, pretty early on I decided I also needed an adult joy and I needed to have the difference um, between child joy and adult joy and for her to, I think I can say this without giving away spoilers, for her to take revenge as an adult because she was not empowered as a child and wasn't able to do that as a child. Um, and then I was in uh, writing workshops with other writers and a few people who had read various chapters and so on said, but why is George, the father, why is he like that? And, and the mother, why is she like that? We kind of need to have some of her their background. So I wrote very small chapters that are um, Gwen and George's, Joy's parents, uh, how they meet, how they move to, you know, sort of why and how they move to the farm and what happens in their relationship that sets up um, the scenarios and the family dynamics that are going to control what happens to Joy as a child and, and even what happens when Joy comes back later to nurse her father while he's dying and, yeah, she and Ruth hatch a plan to take revenge. Can I say um, those who know me would know that um, I really like audiobooks. I read a lot of print but also audio is good when you're on the go, when you're doing washing, <laughs> when you're doing things. It makes life so much more exciting than it might be. And I have to say, Lynn, I've listened to The Silent Listener uh, on audio and um, the narrator's fantastic and really gets those three time periods. They may have been tricky to write, but they certainly are very um, whole and, um, and and the voice changes and it's, it's, it's a really successful mode, I think. Yeah, I, I, look, I have to thank Penguin for that. They, they 
did a great job and they actually ha um, have three narrators, so one for Joy as a child and an adult, same woman, one for Gwen, the mother, and then one for um, the cop, Shepherd, who comes in to investigate some mysterious events. <laughs> Mark, I'd love to hear a bit from the others as well. There's a, there's a short section which um, really uh, had me curious as to what exactly was going to be happening. Um, I'll, I'll just preface this with saying there's a couple of uh, the dictionary definitions in this passage, so they'll make sense um, hopefully when you hear them. My father has never explained, not completely, who the others are, and I can tell he doesn't like talking about it, but I know a bit from what I've asked and what he's told me. They live over the hill and only come out when it's dark. In the house at night, I mostly feel safe. Sometimes I hear noises like the fence creaking, wires bending. Sometimes I think the others are coming, coming right up to the house. I close my eyes and try to listen. I wonder whether to wake him so he can get the rifle. He keeps it under his bed. But the noise always stops, eventually. When I tell him in the morning, he reckons it was my imagination. Must have been the wind, he says, your ears playing tricks on you. So I don't tell him so much anymore. I keep it to myself. Some of the others are from the commune. The commune is where my father and my mother went after the town, the place he doesn't like talking about very much. He says people in the town had the plague, so they had to leave. The commune was like the town, only smaller. But things went wrong at the commune. And he says some of the people there got the plague too. He and my mother used to talk about the commune. I can't remember them talking about it, but he's told me. He told me they had to leave. He said he didn't like their vision at the commune, but my mother disagreed. Vision, imaginative planning for the future. There are a lot of different meanings for that word, but I worked it out eventually. That's the right one, I think. Or this one. It's definitely one of these two. Vision, thing or person seen in a dream or trance. It's probably the first one. With the others, I worry about the sheep mostly because they're out there on their own. I worry the others could come and take them away. They're always the first thing I look for in the morning. I open the door and check the sheep are still there. I'm not allowed out too much on my own, mostly just with my father when we're working on the farm or getting wood. He doesn't like me out on my own, just in case the others see me. Where did the idea of the others come from? Yeah, that's a million-dollar question. Um, you know, I, I could try to intellectualise it and say it's about um, difference and, and certainly when I was, was growing up, um, we were the only Italian family in the town where where I grew up, and um, I think there was there was one Greek family that had the fish and chip shop, one Chinese family who had a Chinese restaurant, and that was it. Um, so I always had a feeling of of being different, I suppose, from other people, um, and that that sense of of otherness. So I think that that really infused the writing of this book because 
particularly children, you know, um, they're fearful often of difference. They're fearful of different people, um, people with different skin colour and all that kind of thing. And I experienced that to some extent growing up and I think that that was part of the driver for, for this book. But in terms of the actual naming of them as the others, that was was something which just just flowed. I mean, when I when I was writing the first draft of this book, and I'm inside that that viewpoint of Jacob, it's like uh, I, I see the world through his eyes. You know, I'm there inside that world when I'm writing for those few hours a day. I'll procrastinate beforehand do all manner of things around the house but when I go into it I'm in that world I'm on the farm there with Jacob I'm writing in the diary and so it's almost like being in character for me um, day after day while I'm drafting so I have to stay connected with it that entire time so that's why I say like you know it was one of the hardest experiences writing writing this book I, I don't like to you know sort of people have very hard jobs writing is not a very hard job compared to a lot of things so it's 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 a great job but it, compared to the first couple of books it certainly um took a lot more out of me uh writing this if you're in character when you write this sort of book um does that mean that you need to write in silence does it need mean you need to write without a view how, how do you how do you achieve that yeah, I <laughs> I've been lucky to have a few residencies over the over the years um and and go to some really great places to to work and I remember going up to uh Varuna the National Writers Center up in Katoomba which is beautiful and they they look after you there and you're just focused on writing you share the space with other writers they cook your meals it's it's wonderful um, and I had this studio there, the, the Eleanor Dark studio, which is outside and faces onto the, the garden. And it's it's beautiful, beautiful garden. And I got there and I had to turn the desk against the wall and face against the wall because I, I really need um, almost sensory deprivation to go inside the world of my characters. I don't want to see anything else. Um, I even wear, I've got like earmuffs that I wear, you know, like those ear protectors. Silencing. Yeah. Silencing. Well, no, they're just like a pair I got from Aldi, like the ears. <laughs> like if you had a jackhammer or something, you know. Um, and I got them actually because I had a, there was a neighbour over the road who was doing renovations and it was incredibly noisy. So I've got these earmuffs and now they're, they're like my good luck charm. So every time I'm writing, I'm in these like hideous grey earmuffs. Um, so yeah, like where, where I actually write those, like in my, in my loft, I'm lucky to have, it's such a cliche. I've got a loft, you know, I write a loft and it's got a nice view. Um, but I, I don't look at the view. I'm, I'm just inside the world of the characters. It doesn't matter where I, I am just as long as it's quiet and, you know, nothing too pretty around. And no music. No music. No. How, how about you, Lynn? Yeah, no, I, I have music, but only instrumental music. I can't have um, any music with lyrics because I'm going to kind of get into the lyrics while I'm, and I can't do that while I'm trying to write uh, words as well. So uh, I tend to listen to classical music um, and I'll have it up fairly loud. Uh, and it tends to be um, uh, upbeat classical music because I almost find I write 
um, in time with the rhythm. So if it's very upbeat and rousing, then my fingers are moving really quickly. So I really like that. But sometimes I, I write in quiet too. Sometimes I actually kind of forget to put the music on. So I don't have a routine as such. Even though lots of people say they really like routines that they get into to write, I, I don't have one of those. Um, so I do listen to music, but always instrumental, never uh, never with lyrics. Thank you so much, Mark and Lynn. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed that session from last year's Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival, then join us this September in person or online for what will be another huge weekend of crime writing and crime writers at the 2022 festival. Go to the Bad Sydney website, sign up for the newsletter and follow us on social media to be informed as soon as the tickets are released. We hope to see you there and make sure you come up and say hello. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the All About Crime podcast from Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. If you'd like to be part of the crime conversation, head over to Facebook and join our Bad All About Crime book club. The books featured in this episode are available from our online bookseller, partner Booktopia. You can find a direct link to the Booktopia Bad All About Crime page on this episode's show notes. If you love listening to All About Crime, please give us a rating and review in your favourite podcast app so other people can discover us too. The views, opinions and attitudes expressed in this episode of All About Crime are those of the participants and not those of Bad Sydney Crime Writers Festival. Until the next thrilling episode, keep reading and talking crime. 